Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. Before we begin, don't forget, you can catch the highlights from every Premier League game before anybody else simply by downloading The Times app to your smartphone. Yes, it's that simple. This week, I'm joined in the studio by Daniel Finkelstein. It's a special treat to have him here. Alison Rudd and down the line from his hideout in Sandbanks, it's Jim Proudfoot. So let's get into it straight away. First up, Chelsea and Manchester United. David Moyes, halftime team talk. I'm sure we'll have centred around some defensive basics. Williams ball in. On to Hare. Stopped the initial header from Cahill. But Samueletto is there to complete his hat-trick. It goes from bad to worse for the champions. Denny, I want to start with you because you told us what a great weekend you had because I I don't think I'm outing anybody by um, (coughs) referring to you as a Chelsea supporter. But I want to ask you about David Moyes first. And he said that Basically, apart from defending on set pieces, that Manchester United played pretty well. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like your team beat a side that played pretty well? Well, I felt they actually did quite well in the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, but they couldn't turn it into anything. I think the distressing thing for Man United, you know, with the defensive errors they made, is that their defence is actually their strong suit. So while they're as good as Manchester City, according to the think tank rankings in um, in in defence, it's attack where they uh, lag behind. So to have made those kind of defensive errors to lose a game, well, it was pretty poor. They 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 had a chance of winning. I mean, they they had a, a sort of 20, 20, 25% chance of winning the game. So actually, it was a pretty poor result. And if I were him, I would have concentrated on that rather than trying to say they played well. Uh, Jim, th- that's interesting. And I dare say maybe even a little bit uh, counterintuitive because the conventional wisdom is that um, the defense with with Vidic having been in and out and not being offered a new contract and uh, and Rafael and, and never getting older um, and not much shield from the midfield um, that's actually supposed to be their weak suit and up front they're supposed to be 
really struggling without Van Persie and Rooney. Yeah, and they did start very well. I mean, if Ashley Young had that great chance in the opening couple of minutes, uh, and there were the two or three moments, I thought, in the first 15 minutes where John Terry looked off the pace, was being done for pace and, and positionally didn't seem to be quite in the right uh, areas. But Manchester United couldn't exploit that. And uh, I think that the heads dropped as soon as Samuel Eto'o scored the first goal. Uh, but it was the defensive side of the game which was the most alarming. I and mean, there's that famous screenshot which has been doing the rounds on Twitter ever since of the one Eto'o goal where he scored. And you can see five Manchester United players in the frame, three of them in a straight line, five yards behind Eto'o, uh, and no one's anywhere near him. And that's the kind of thing that's, that's just basic. Midfield clearly is still a problem for them and, and um, Phil Jones I think proved yesterday that he is going to be a very good centre-half. He's not going to be um, the asset that Manchester United need playing slightly further forward and I, I just think it was another performance really that created more questions than answers for David Moyes. I, how, did, how did Phil Jones prove he's going to be a very good centre-half? Are you being slightly sarcastic? I was trying to put a <laughs> positive spin else. rather than <laughs> saying Phil Jones isn't going to be... Um, a, a defensive-minded midfielder. I think that I think that I don't know if if Jones had played at centre half yesterday, would United have done any better? I don't think they could have done any worse defensively. So I, I think that he is a centre half. I don't think he's a midfielder. Um, Alison, I, I I think I like David Moyes and, and as much as anybody, and this is why I'm sort of disappointed every week on this show. Um, but I actually thought they were terrible. I mean, I, I thought there were so many basic things. Okay, so you, if, when you go there with Young and Valencia on your wingers, uh, uh, out, out wide, and their job is basically to help out and stuff um, William and, um, and, and Hazard, you're not going to get the attacking lift. And, and they didn't after the first 15, 20 minutes. When Michael Carrick has to sit deep, and obviously he's not going to make runs forward, and those two guys, Young and Valencia, don't ever, ever, ever cut inside, he's not going to be able to find them. And so your attack, basically boils down to, oh, this 18-year-old kid, let's have him go and take on John Terry and Gary Cahill and create something out of nothing. Am I being too harsh on Moyes? I, I know in the outcome, you're right, the first 15, 20 minutes, they had their chances and whatever. It took Chelsea a while to get going, and Chelsea were obviously very fortunate with the goals and individual errors. I get all that. But what strikes me is, isn't he supposed to be building towards something? Is he really building towards a team that plays like that with, with a centre half in, in midfield and with, with young and Valencia types out wide? On that particular game, you have to judge Moyes. How did he set up the team given that he had his two star players missing? And I think that's where he could come in for criticism. On the one hand, it's really unlucky you don't have Rooney and Van Persie available for one of the biggest matches of the season so far. So what do you do about it? And it seemed to me, Yanazai, I agree with you, a lot focus on him but it was a bit like one of those sort of like comedy sketch football matches where he's expecting Anazai to play deep and get the ball to Welbeck to also play ahead of Welbeck and therefore kind of pass to himself and yet Yanazai appears to prefer to drift wide where he just gets in the way of whoever's out on the wing anyway it was it was slightly messy and it didn't seem to have um it didn't seem to have a plan to it other than high energy for the first 20 minutes and then what i'm not sure what the plan was after that if only he had a, an attacking midfielder um on the bench maybe one who won the bundesliga title with borussia dortmund um and who also has genuine pace i want to i want to check that you about yana's identity because what strikes me is the the argument that's often made is that when you take a very young player and you throw him in onto the pitch for an extended period of time, 
a lot of sort of football people uh, will tell you that there's a risk of burnout, there's a risk of too much pressure, issues off the page. Now, it's, it's a very tough call because none of us actually live and work with Yanazai every day. But what I'm curious about is, is that just one of those sort of football conventional wisdom situations where unless it's like a Maldini or a Rooney or something, you know, you can't do it? Or is there actually some logic behind it? We Not only have we unfortunately not done a specific work, piece of work on that, but it's also very difficult to do, do that because people do almost uniformly not play their 18-year-olds. And I suppose that, um, you know, regular, and I suppose there's probably some sort of wisdom in that, but I, I'd be surprised if it was as true as people in the game think. Generally speaking, our work suggests that those kind of myths and ideas are not really true. And I'd be surprised if it was the case that he was capable of playing in the game, he could torture the opposition, and yet it's a bad idea to play him. Uh, I think that it would probably be a good idea to play him. That would be just where the rest of our research usually ends up. But isn't it less about the physical? impact of playing a youngster a lot and more about traditionally it's been the mental impact of throwing someone in and then it not working and how does that set them back in what in what circumstances do you play him and in what circumstances you put a lot of pressure on his abilities no i i I agree with that i mean whether it's mental or physical i mean in this guy's case it probably potentially if if there is a risk it's it's mental i think it's probably also a bit of a developmental risk as well in the sense that i don't think yanazai's future at united is behind a striker for the very simple reason that they have two very good ones in Van Persie and Rooney. They have Kagawa too, who maybe I'm the only one who likes. I, I think logically his future would probably be on the wing. Kagawa, so, by the way, is an extremely good player. And when he bought Kagawa, Kagawa was ranked equal to Hazard internationally in, in European castrol rankings. So I think not the way that they've failed to use him is extraordinary. Jim, you have some experience here because, of course, at 18, you were a bit of a prodigy in, in your specific <laughs> field as well. Do you, do you buy this sort of mental, physical argument? Or do you, are you, do you go with the good enough, young enough, old enough? The latter, I think. I think it is one of football's truisms that it just has become perceived wisdom and therefore must be must be correct. And it would be interesting. I, I mean, I bow to, uh, to Daniel's scientific brain. If he says it's, it's going to be a very difficult thing to prove, then I'm not one to argue. But it would be it would be a fascinating study if ever a way um, was made available, or uh, you know, players were given that kind of opportunity for long enough that we could come up with some sort of uh, scientific reasoning as to you know whether it is a truism or whether it genuinely is something that does happen. It's, it's, my, amen, it's amenable personal, to scientific research, by the way. It's just that who's going to try it on their part? Yeah, no, ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my personal view is that Yanezai um, is in there on merit. <laughs> Boy, do they need him. I mean, he was the one sort of shining light in that performance yesterday. Uh, and they're going to have to play him week in, week out. You'll get examples of players, though, like, for instance, um, Will Hughes at Derby, who... Missed the last six, eight weeks of last season. Uh, just the derby just completely shut him down because he was, you know, shot to pieces. He was just absolutely mentally and physically exhausted. So it's a difficult one. But the bottom line is, I suppose, how have Manchester United got themselves in this position where they're so reliant on Yanizai for a game of that magnitude when he's played less than 20 senior matches in his career? Um, that probably is, is the bigger picture. No, I, I thought. Um, Mourinho got so much in this game out of Willian and, and Oscar. Obviously, Samuel Eto'o's going to get the headlines, and Danny, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to tell me that he's incredibly efficient because he had few touches and a lot of goals and, and, and whatnot. I mean, we talked about very young players, but with, with Eto'o, obviously, he's older. He 
been away in in Makhachkala and uh, in Dagestan. Is there some corner he's turning here, or is this just a very good performance because he got? It's too early to tell. It's, it may be uh, just uh, that he's a person who can score a certain number of goals and they happen to cluster in this game. Um, so you can't be sure that he's turned any kind of corner. You'd need much longer, obviously, uh, to see whether that was the case. Funnily enough, the, the think tank's been slightly unconvinced by Willian, mainly because if you watch him, though he gets the ball and he has a lot of energy, his final pass often goes astray. And... Um, you know, once you are alerted to that, if you watch him, you'll see it happens a very large proportion of the time. So although he makes a big impression on the field, uh, he has got a failing in his game. It's surprising, you know, that he can, uh, that he's sort of uh, not pushed a bit more on that particular uh, failing. It was a bit like Sean Wright Phillips could run really fast, but then he often got tackled and lost the ball. And that was a f- big failing in his game. So I think there is still one kind of quite big hole in what is otherwise a brilliant player. I mean, I, I was watching Match of the Day 2 last night. And Pat Nevin said Oscar is the best tackler in the Premier League. Um, and I, if you watch Chelsea regularly, you know that he does so much work off the ball as sort of a... A, a spoiler, a defensive attacking midfielder, if that makes any sense. Do, does he fall into that category as well, or do you just mostly measure his attacking contribution? No, he's Oscar, um, on the contrary, is a very consi- is a consistently good player across all of those different categories. So I'm, I think we're much more confident about Oscar as a player than about William. Where would you, where would you ideally play him if you were, if you had Mourinho's ear? Oscar, you yeah. mean? Well, I think I would play him. I think you know. I mean, the truth is, I. W- First of all, the idea of me having Mourinho's ear, Mourinho, require, Mourinho requiring my <laughs> advice is preposterous. But the um, but let's assume, let's assume that that ridiculousness was true. Um, I think I would play him, yeah, where he's played, and I think I think actually most Chelsea fans have now accepted that the decision between him and Mata in the middle is probably correct, the one that that Mourinho's made, because. The truth is, it's produced a consistency of results, and Oscar's performances are incredible. But you've just, you've, but you and Gab have both just, to me, described someone who'd play better as sitting next to. How come? Lampard. Because of the tackling. No, but I, I think he's he's good at that. But, he's very efficient. But and he distributes well. I think that's the fallacy there, right? That well, one of the two he, he picked of late is David Luiz, and obviously all the skepticism can he play in midfield. I think it looked like he didn't want to play him there. He's, I think, he's kind of had to. Recently, although that might now change with uh, with Matic, um, JP, wh- what do you make of him? There is he. Are you sold on David Luiz in midfield in the uh, in the Mourinho system as opposed to the Rafa system? Is when he doesn't go and jump on people's heads like he did with Valencia? I don't know. I'm, I I think I'm more negative about David Luiz than the vast majority. Uh, I I just always see him as a player who makes uh, a mistake, being at centre half. I think he's probably. Mourinho's probably got more out of him than anybody else um, because he's, he's been able to limit the mistakes to a certain extent. Well, by not uh, playing him. I, I, by not playing him, <laughs> by and large. Um, he hasn't made too many mistakes at the bench, on the bench so far. Uh, Cahill and Terry clearly is the, the, the best centre-half partnership I think that they've got. You've got Ivanovic that you can play in there as well. So I, I don't think there's a need for David Luiz to play in there. Yesterday, and I know we'll come on to the, the tackle um, shortly, but he was effective enough uh, I, I do think probably providing you can um, try and still be on his case all the time about the amount of discipline and, and positional sense playing in that deeper midfield role that probably is where to play and I think the fact that he's playing him in midfield is an indication that he isn't quite what Chelsea are after because he's a centre-back and they don't feel confident they can play him there and they're a better uh, holding midfield players and I think Chelsea have just bought one so um, I've 
I think on the whole, considering that David Luiz is wanted by other clubs, he's very expensive, I, I think ultimately Chelsea should sell him. Raise some nice, nice bit of cash there with uh, David Luiz and Mata. Going on to the two red cards now. Uh, oh, sorry, one red card and um, there's a Freudian slip. Yeah, exactly. guess what Gab thinks. Well, now first of all, I think something. Vidic on on Hazard. Right? I could see how it might have been a yellow as opposed to a red, but there's two things I have to get off my chest here. Right. First of all, the next time somebody says, "Ooh, that's just frustration," right? I wish I had a mallet just bang them over the head with. That is one of the stupidest things. What do you mean? Oh, oh, really? Oh, really? Is it frustration? Really? Oh, no. I thought he wanted just to assault him because that's how he gets his kicks. I mean, <laughs> what the hell does that mean? No, that's just frustration, Gab. The, uh, <laughs> that's on my part. <laughs> I mean, it's just so annoying. And I, what got me, too, is, and I appreciate it could have been a yellow easily, somewhere between yellow and red. Uh, Alison I, might tell me otherwise. Fine, so I thought but, I had a different answer. I didn't think it was frustration. I thought it was quite calculated. I thought that um, you know, at the moment that well, he, I need a few days off. Well, there are two things, right? Which I think it, no, I think he no, it wasn't that. I don't think he meant to get a red card, and I think he probably thought he hadn't done enough. Uh, but I think it's very difficult to stop Hazard, um, and he gets fouled all the time, basically because he kicks the ball just a little bit ahead of himself and runs after him. And because of that, the player's almost always a few, se- you know, a second, a half a second after him, and is continuously fouling him. And that's and I and I so I think it was part error, and part a commitment to stop him in an incredibly dangerous position. So I think it was much more clinical than that. Why was it such a dangerous position? Well, because I think actually if you if you kind of uh, take back the camera from where it was, he was going to make a lot of progress to get past Vidic. But you're 3-1 okay. down, right? It's, it's what, like the 90th minute of the game. You've got this big League Cup um, uh, final, or no, semi-final, I guess, coming up. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that it's, it's a lot for a guy to process, but this is also Nemanja Vidic, true. who's a team captain and the leader and the yeah. veteran. It's true probabilistically that it would, that, you know, that I, you can show that there are good moments to make uh, red card challenges, and this wouldn't have been one of them. The equation was not right. correct. But I, you know, t- I'd forgive him if he didn't actually calculate the, it was quite a complicated equation. You probably need a computer and he didn't have one. <laughs> but to, to be fair, I, I hold Vidic to a very high standard because he's, he's lived up to it in the past. I mean, you know, I, I know it's difficult for him. Uh, with some of the some of his, the way some of his teammates are playing, but I, I mean, Allison, I obviously have to turn to you as qualified referee. Is was that an orange card, as some people have suggested? Yeah, probably. But you know, the referee has to make a judgment call. Right. How was it? Did it err on the side of dangerous? If it did, and okay. I think it probably did because Hazard was midair, and a, a lot can go wrong when you're tackled midair like that. All right, now the other obvious one is the Raphael one. Um, if if I were Moyes. I would give him a three-game ban myself just for being so completely <laughs> idiotic and, and dangerous. Um, and I think we've disabused the notion now that, ooh, but he got the ball, so it's okay. I think that went out the window decades ago. We don't need to cover that. But I, I'm interested in, in, in the referee's reaction. Was he too far away? Maybe couldn't judge it properly? Or was it simply a case, oh, I don't really want to send off two United players? Yeah. Maybe he thought it was frustration. Kevin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what was, I was, think he probably – I think the referee saw clearly that he did – Raphael did get the ball, and that, and because they'd just been ascending off, he clung to that fact, which meant he didn't need to. He should have, but it meant he, he felt he didn't need to send him off. It was a, a lamentable challenge. It was it was a disgusting challenge. Now let's move on to Liverpool and Villa. Steven Gerrard now, a little bit of space, and he's picked out Luis Suarez here. Suarez who on goal, he's gone down. And the referee has indicated that he believes that's a penalty. 
Aston Villa think very differently. The slow motion replay suggests Aston Villa were absolutely right. All right, I'm going to start with you, JP, because you're not a Liverpool fan. So you've got Daniel Sturridge coming back in, and you've got this sort of problem, which I don't know that he's ever really resolved. And what sort of formation makes sense with Sturridge and Suarez both starting together, which obviously they hadn't done in a while? Uh, he opted for a formation with Lucas on the bench, Gerard deep, thinking maybe that Villa were just going to concede a lot of the ball or whatever. Uh, it obviously didn't work out that way at all, did it? No, it didn't work out that way. And Gerard's performance, I think, was, you know, he was honest enough to admit that wasn't uh, acceptable, really. First 45 minutes, uh, he and Liverpool were very poor. And, it, and it's strange that lightning is struck twice because I was at this I didn't didn't go to the fixture on Saturday but I was I was at the same fixture last year where the game played out in a very similar manner Villa obviously won on that occasion and they again had just been able to sit back you know what Aston Villa are going to do away from home I know that Liverpool will play that formation as you say because they think that uh, Villa are going to let them come on to them they will get a lot of possession that is slightly Lambert's tactical ploy a little bit more technical than that but they do hit quickly on the counter-attack and that was what Liverpool couldn't deal with and that that was the most surprising element of the game was you know exactly how Aston Villa are going to play in any given game because there are no real surprises. They, they, they also, I mean, to credit to Lambert here, he dropped Vyman on, um, on, on Gerrard, which isn't necessarily rocket science, but he went and he had the courage to do it while leaving the two strikers up, one of them big and strong, the other one very fast. They tended to pin the fullbacks back and I'm thinking I'm Gerard. I look up I've got there's, there's this little Vyman buzzing around me I've got a line of three central midfielders in front of me I'm getting no help from the fullbacks all the only guy I have to keep me company is Jordan Henderson of course you're going to struggle right I mean he went to three at the back it seemed at some point in the first half should he have made a change sooner and figured out straight away that this is just stupid and it's not it's just not working for me and uh, or, or, or was he right to sort of let the first half play out? Uh, no, probably not. But that's with hindsight, isn't it? I mean, I well, it's hindsight it, to a degree because you're actually watching the game. You can see what's happening, and and it's happening time and time yeah, again. Yeah, often if a manager makes a radical switch midway through the first half, that can have repercussions on how the whole team feels. Hang on, we weren't ready for this. You, you know, you. you Convention is at half time. You bring them in and explain why you're doing it. It's quite hard to make it work. Someone 23 minutes to, to make too, why? too big a change. I, I, I find this interesting because I would have thought, and again here maybe it's a cultural thing too. But if your players are tactically drilled properly, you should be able. And, and, and there, there's other issues obviously at, at Liverpool because obviously Suarez and Sturridge haven't had a lot of time together on, on the training pitch and whatever else. But I, I don't know that on principle you can't make a switch after 20 minutes and change a formation or adjust people's positions on the pitch. And, and he, he did do that later with, when, he, when he basically moved Johnson as a, as a third center half and Sterling wide. So I'm just wondering, if, is that something that Rodgers wishes he could have back and, and he wishes he could have acted sooner? You'd have made a substitution, wouldn't you, to make the switch work? <laughs> In the first half? He's not Marino, managers, he's... managers don't like to make early subs. The game can run, up, run well, no, right but you away could... from you if he starts uh-huh. fiddling in the 23rd minute. JP, I sense a bit of a of a cultural disconnect here. Am I being unfair here that, that that I'm suggesting that there's other ways for a team to change their formation without actually changing personnel? No, it depends on how wholesale the changes are that have got to be made. I I, I think that to 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 look at the the broader question that you asked, 
yes, he left it too long. Okay, with the benefit, the hindsight, with the, with the benefit of hindsight, and you know that um, Aston Villa have scored those two goals. Uh, but I think it was sort of eminently preventable, and and Steven Gerrard perhaps has to take some of the responsibility, which he did, and, and get it, and get it well, and get it sorted himself. Yeah, he, he you know, he, he. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He has to tell Brendan Rodgers where things are going wrong and, and there has to be dialogue from the pitch to the to the dugout as well. It has to be a two-way street. Well, that if, is if, interesting, if, if, isn't it, Jim? Because, I mean, I honestly don't believe Stephen Gerrard has been begging Brendan Rodgers to be playing in that role. I really don't get a sense of no, that at all. No, 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 I would go along with that. But what I'm saying is that if he thinks that things are going wrong while while things are happening, events are happening around him on the pitch and he doesn't think that anything is being done about it or doesn't think that satisfactory messages are come, coming across to make the change, then the players have to take responsibility as well to tell the bench, look, get this sorted. We're struggling. No way, no way, no way, no way. If, you, if, you if, you, if you're Stephen Gerrard and you found your manager has suddenly decided your future is playing a sort of sweeper role, a holding role, and you're not entirely sure you're ready for it, um, but you don't want to cause a big rift, but everyone knows it's a bit of an experiment and it's a slightly radical approach from Rogers. and mid-match you try and indicate to the bench that it's not working for you. That is going to be seen in political terms. It's going to be seen in terms of, I'm, I'm saying the manager's getting this wrong. It's not going to be seen as, oh, thank well, goodness, we've got Stevie G to tell us where we're going wrong. That's not going to happen at all. It does seem to me as though teams ought to have... The- you know, they ought to be organised in order to allow themselves to make that change. Because when you're choosing, uh, basically, then, you know, there's a field of research g- game theory, uh, which suggests it's very difficult to know how to position your own team in relation to another without knowing how that other team's going to uh, position itself. But the moment you know that, the situation's completely altered. And so, therefore, it's obvious that at that point you ought to alter your own uh, setup. And it seems to me very odd. Sometimes teams. You know, even in the 70th minute, full of information they didn't have when they began, persist with the same strategy and replace one of their players with a player in exactly the same place. And <laughs> lo and behold, almost all the research suggests that doesn't work. It doesn't make any difference. Whereas tactical changes do work. And, and most obvious ones, are, you know, when you're ahead, become more defensive, for example, which is, you know... So, Alice, Alison, can I, can I just pick you up on that? You're saying that if Stephen Gerrard should, um, should not... If, if he thinks things are going wrong... He should be considering the political ramifications of, of, of you know, passing a message across to the dugout as opposed to just standing there and wanting to get things changed so that you know, one point in that game becomes three. Not, 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 if, not no. If he's playing in his normal position, then, then he, as the captain and as the most influential Liverpool player, he should be getting the point across. I think it's made very difficult for him to do that when he's playing in a new position 
and we don't know for sure, but he may have had reservations and expressed those reservations in training. If he starts saying, it's not working for me, that could be interpreted as just giving up. Because who, who was going to help him out? Because he had to bring Lucas on. And my point is, I don't well, think you're going to make a substitution like that in the first half. Well, I mean, I suppose um, the simplest, easiest thing he could have done was perhaps go and tell Jordan Henderson to go and sit in front of the back four and help him. Um, given well, that well Henderson was, was. Henderson was mm. nominally part of that. Nominally, duo. nominally being the the operative word here. I think Henderson was asked to to do and to do more more back and forth because he's got the legs for it. Um, I want to uh, uh, I want to move on to, to something which I thought was was quite remarkable, the the Guzan on Suarez penalty because you had this wonderful situation where you watch a match of the day Saturday night and they all agree. If I'm not, I think they were all strikers. Plus, um, because, because it was Shearer, Lineker, and I forget who was the third. Or somebody forgettable, no doubt. And they all agree that it was uh, Danny. Was it Danny Murphy? Murphy? There you go. Who agrees with the consensus? I thought it was remarkable because they, they, they all agreed there was penalty. And then Collymore um, goes in the opposite direction, and I think most people thought that it was actually a dive. Is that what determines it, or is it the case that Suarez shouldn't have to get out of the way and he shouldn't have to go and run into him? for it to be a penalty. There are situations where you don't, there doesn't have to be contact. If Suarez has to skip over a challenge or divert the direction of his run in order to stay in control of the ball because someone's arms are in the way, that would be a penalty. Skip over by diving over him, for example. Well, no, but you might be trying to stay on your feet and then be unable to do so. And that so what happened here? Here, I well, actually thought it was a really, really clever dive. So he should not have given. Them. I mean, I, I thought it, I thought it was extremely difficult for the referee. Oh yeah, I wouldn't blame my, the referee one job. My, my only solution on this one would have been the one I always make, and then I always get some, you know, Wally's going, "Oh, well, look, they made a mistake." It was extra referees. I think would have helped. It would have had a different angle. It might have been something that that they would have that they, that they would have caught. I see no logical reason uh, not to have them. I'm, I, I think there is something that sometimes falls between a dive and a penalty. It's just one of the consequences of running at the goalkeeper. And I saw this, this happen with Ramirez um, against Derby County as well. Uh, it's not that you fall over because you're running too fast or whatever, but you are anticipating the goalkeeper is going to come out towards you. Part of what you've got to do in anticipating that is try to get the ball in the net. Everything's based on anticipation. And one of the things that you anticipate is that you're going to go over, and then you do. Uh, and, and I think that... Um, it, I don't, I don't think it was a dive. I mean, Suarez is obviously capable of a dive, but I don't think it was a dive. But I, I'm not sure it was a penalty either, uh, because I, you know, because I don't think it was because of it was because Guzan was doing anything that was foul play. He was going after the ball. He didn't make contact. Um, so I, I wouldn't have given either. You know, I wouldn't have either given a penalty or a card. If the geography uh, of the, the situation was different, Daniel, if it had been in a much more central position, do you think he would have stayed on his feet? Well, I don't know, because it's obviously, um, you know, the moment that you st- one player bites another, you begin to then not be able to work <laughs> out their pattern of thought at all. So conceivably, um, just watching that, I, I think that sometimes it's assumed that if a, if, if a player goes over without contact, it must be a dive, a deliberate dive. Whereas I actually think it's something a little bit more complicated than that, is all I'm saying. I thought it was a penalty. I've, I've got to be honest. I can say... I, I, I uh, totally agree with what Ali says about the about John Moss's decision. He, he's he's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't. I've obviously have been fortunate enough to have seen it from plenty of different angles, and I'm still not sure. So what chance has he got? All right, time now for our debate. And by the way, if you're uh, wondering where Danny went, well, he had to pop out to the House of Lords as it happened. We hope to have him back later for quick hits, so stay tuned. 
All right, so this is the, uh, I'm going to try to sum up here, the, the, the tale of Southampton. You have a very, very wealthy man uh, named Marcus Liebherr. You might have seen his cranes and construction equipment uh, dotting construction sites up and down uh, the, the world, really. Um, he decides he wants to buy a football club. He hooks up with his friend, uh, Nicola Cortese, who's a banker, uh, not necessarily a Swiss banker, but um, still a banker and, and, a, and a consultant, and a guy who's got uh, some experience uh, running companies, if not football clubs. They decide to buy Southampton. Southampton get promoted from League One to the championship. Uh, Marcus Liebherr passes away. Marcus Liebherr's main heir is his daughter, Katerina, who really doesn't have much interest in football whatsoever, but she kind of uh, makes an arrangement uh, with, uh, with Cortese, uh, whereby they're going to continue trying to grow the club because uh, he convinces her that it is, a, it is a business they're running and Southampton can get to the Premier League. Uh, they do get to the Premier League. They, they uh, advance from the championship. Uh, then they seem to go from strength to strength, become flavor of the month, produce all these young England players. And now the latest is that Cortese resigns and leaves the club. The reasons given for it depends who you want to believe. The official reason is that Katerina Liebherr wanted to come in and um, slightly limit his powers. I believe he was uh, basically omnipotent at the club, and it is, after all, her club. Those who are more kindly predisposed towards Cortese uh, might argue that he resigned because she was threatening to sell the club and he believed that the club could increase in value and you should do that before selling it. Uh, is that a fair summation, JP? It hit the nail on the head because there have been no direct quotes uh, as of this point from anybody really in connection with the sale. So I think there's plenty of speculation. Those seem to be basically the, the, the two horses in the race. I am fascinated by, by Cortese and the way the media works. And I know it's not nice when we talk about ourselves, but I think we kind of have to because I've never seen anybody go on such a roller coaster going from, from nasty, interfering villain to sort of godlike, almost Marine, the Mourinho of, of chief executives or executive chairman or whatever he was because it's, it's remarkable. He, he was good when he bought the club. He was bad when he sacked Alan Pardew. He was good when he appointed Atkins and they got promoted. He was bad when he sacked Atkins. He was good because he ended up hiring somebody better than Atkins. I don't, I don't get it. Is it. I mean, does this seem normal to you, Allison, these hysterical reactions to Cortese? Or is it simply because uh, one of the guys he sacks has certain very high-profile friends in the media who are very happy to bang his drum at every opportunity? This is what happens. He's, he's a strong personality, doesn't give a lot away to the media, so they have to get what crumbs they can and mix it with what happens actually happens and he's an autocrat who happens to do the right thing so you will get the swings of opinion going it, it ultimately no matter whether you're a manager player owner billionaire whoever you are if the results and the style are there which they are with Southampton you are going to be seen as having made the right decisions I don't think it's weird I think it's ha it happens happens all the time in football and indeed in other, well, other I, sectors. I'd argue what's weird is that Southampton and have pretty much been on an ever upward trend, also not just because this guy's so clever, but also because Lieber did invest a lot of money in the club. So, but, but that's weird. It's not as if the results have been up and down and he's praised or criticized based on the results. He's praised or criticized based on how he deviates from conventional wisdom. Like when he let Atkins go, he made it very clear, I'm not letting Atkins go because Atkins is bad or he's guilty or he deserves to go. I'm making him, I'm letting him go because I think 
this other dude, Pochettino, is better. And that's, I mean, but that's exactly what good managers do. You know, it, it's, 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 it's... Right, but, ha- but we in the media haven't spotted it. We're, we're like, oh, look, cruel, insane Cortez that gets rid of, 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 of poor oh, Atkins. But the media have the wherewithal to, to reverse that decision when it works well. But it's not, it, 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 is, it is about taking a different... Um, yeah, you're, you're right, Gab, in that if a manager lets... It is the, the, the example is with Mourinho. We think, ooh, Mourinho's a bit bit odd, isn't he? He doesn't seem to love matter the way we all love matter. Then he proves on the pitch that he has a better way of playing than using matter. And everyone says, well, he's always been a genius, Mourinho. Has he? Then he's got it right. We were wrong. Exactly the same things happened with Cortese. We think, oh, how can he do that to nice Mr. Adkins? Before you know it, the fans who are planning a protest don't even do one because they see almost instantaneously that he's appointed a manager that, that the team will grow with and be more exciting with and more successful with. So... It's it's the same kind of thing. If you can prove that your radical decision is for the better, you will get a U-turn in opinion. It's very easy to envisage a situation where he's back at the club in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I know. I think if if Wang Zhanlin buys the club, who's he going to hire as the as the chief exe- chief executive? Well, if I'd like to put my Cortese, name forward. That then he'd be well, uh, well, okay. I didn't realise that you were throwing your hat into the ring, so I so I will sort of withdraw my stance a little bit. But if you didn't hire either Cortese or you, then uh, you know you'd have to say that Wang Zhanlin would be would be a fool, really, because he clearly is the man for the job. He knows the club, and when you've got players who have it written into their contracts, and at least one senior pro at the club has it written into his contract that uh, he has a Cortese clause in there, you know that he's he's doing something right as far as the players are concerned. So I, I don't understand. I I must admit I can't. Really really get my head round why he's picked now to resign you know what the actual definitive answer is but I don't think that this is necessarily the end of the book as far as Cortese and Southampton are concerned that this might just be the end of part one this is an unusual situation where you've got a chief executive who's arguably as high profile as the manager also because as we said the manager keeps pretending he doesn't speak English that's a very un-English thing right normally the chief executive is, is somebody who who stays in the shadows. I mean, I, I don't know if we've ever heard Ron Gurley speak, or the guy at United, of course, has a good reason for staying in the shadows. But, yeah, I, but I, I presume there's a chief executive at Newcastle, but we don't know who he is. Yeah, uh, no, I don't. Who is that, it? Uh, Anybody know? Anybody? Anybody? It's not no, Derek, see, whatever he's going But you see, at Newcastle, what we do know is Mike Ashley and Joe Kinnear. That's So I, I understand what you're saying. In someone in that role, he is extremely high profile. But he's not uh, high profile because high, he's talking to us profile. all the time, is it? It's not like he's he's he's, he's carving out a media presence. Maybe he's not and talking he's, to you, maybe. He's asking to be, you know, interviewed by Gary Lineker on Match of the Day instead of the manager or the captain. It's not that's not the reason. The reason is because of the story that's unfolded that you've just so eloquently described, Gab. But also because the the peculiar issue is the way that the manager, a, a, an instantly successful and charismatic manager, albeit one that won't speak English to us, Pochettino, when there was the first crisis in the club, he, he made it clear uh, if, if Cortese goes, is sacked or leaves, I go too. And that... It, they all pulled back from the brink at that point, presumably because everyone thought this is a crisis we can't cope with. That rarely happens that a manager sort of, you know, wraps his future around the fortunes of a chief executive. That's why we know him. Okay, enough Southampton, uh, as lovely as the South Coast is. Uh, uh, how about some quick hits instead? Santi Cazorla bags two goals as Arsenal roll over Fulham. Allison, they seem to be doing just fine. Uh, you sure the consensus is correct in believing they still need a striker? Well, I'm not so sure. The last 12 goals that Arsenal have scored, uh, they've been scored by seven different players. 
they, they are capable of scoring from anywhere. And uh, on Saturday, Wenger, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I don't, I don't know that I, you know, I'd be that keen on having just one out-and-out goal scorer who was the star striker because then I'd be worried about him and I'd have to wrap him in cotton wool and it would be a bit of a stress. I, he likes the fact that the goals can come from anywhere and they've had lots of injury problems and their goals are not drying up and they're still coming from everywhere. It's not his philosophy to buy in and sort of cheat and win the title that way. So I would say they probably <laughs> could still do it. They probably still could do it without buying a star striker. I, I love the notion that uh, having sort of a, a deep squad is cheating and signing somebody mid-season. Uh, Tony Pulis overcomes his old team, Stoke, and uh, Palace are suddenly up to 16th place. Uh, JP, I was highly skeptical about your quasi-namesake, TP, but I was evidently <laughs> wrong. What is the man's secret? Organisation. He's done two things. I've seen Palace uh, extensively this season. I saw a lot of them before he turned up, and I've seen a lot of them after he turned up. Now, the two recent performances I saw were at Manchester City and at Spurs. In neither game did they score, and in neither game did they pick up a point. Yet, what they showed was magnificent desire, an ability to defend from the front, a unity, a cohesion, and a defensive solidity, which, although they lost those two games, certainly hadn't been there in previous performances. That's what he's done. Seven clean sheets in 13 matches. I know they don't score enough goals, but I still believe they'll stay up. Manchester City pummel Cardiff 4-2 and remain perfect at home, 11 of 11. Danny, I'm sure you figured out the chances of them win winning every single home game this season. Um... Any novel ideas as to why they're so good in the friendly confines and other teams that are equally talented might not be? Well, if every team was Cardiff they'd, and they played eight home games, had an 80% chance of winning each of them, their chances of uh, would be 16% of uh, winning every single game. But each team is not uh, Cardiff because they've also got to face uh, Chelsea, who are almost as good as them overall. Interestingly enough, there's actually the gap between those things has narrowed. The reason they do very well at home is they're very, very good and they have home advantage. So you know, even Spurs are only 64% as good uh, as um, as Manchester City, but a team like Cardiff is 31% as good, West Ham 34% as good. So lots of the teams they're playing, they're really twice as good, three times as good as those teams. So it's not surprising they're winning and quite winning quite handsomely. And of course, their attack is what is doing them um, is doing them all the favours. So uh, they're really miles ahead in that. Uh, sphere of all the teams they're playing. West Ham lose at home to Newcastle United. They've won once since November 30th, though, as Big Sam keeps reminding us, they have a zillion clean sheets. Alison, tell me they'll be just fine, that they just uh, either need another centre forward or need their very handsome, bearded, large centre forward who's only just returned to start producing. Oh, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Andy Carroll effect. And he comes <laughs> off the bench and he, he looks, unsurprisingly, he looks really rusty and not like the Messiah at all. I don't see who would want to join West Ham at the moment that's any good anyway. It's all very well going on about clean sheets. They started the season with a good defence, West Ham. They Sorry, can I jump in here for yeah. a second, Alison? No, it's can I just my, say, Alison's wearing sunglasses in the studio. <laughs> There's obviously a good reason for it, Gab, isn't there? Have your eyes been strained or something? My glasses broke. And my backup pair are my sunglasses. OK. <laughs> West Ham started the season with a good defence, but now they have Taylor, Johnson, Collins and Rat at the back. And my colleague Gary Jacob gave them four out of ten each. They, he, because of injury, he has an appalling defence. That's what needs to get right quick. 
Spurs bounced back from a slightly iffy first half to win at Swansea 3-1. JP Tim Sherwood has taken 16 of a possible 18 Premier League points since taking over. If the season began on December 22nd, they'd be top. What surprised you more, Sherwood or Addy, and why? Do you know, I haven't really been surprised by what's happened because I think that Tim Sherwood was a decent appointment. And I know that I am in... Uh, a real minority in saying that, and it's uh, seen as jobs for the boys, and he's got no coaching experience at the, at the big level. He hasn't taken his badges, this, that, and the other, and that makes him a, you know, a, a third-class citizen. I think he's a very savvy bloke. Um, I think that he played an excellent game of poker in getting the job in the first place, and I think that the players respect him. Um, he's probably a pretty good man manager. And bringing Adebayo back into the team, not a masterstroke necessarily. He's got one striker. He's not firing. So bring the other one in and have a look at him. There's, there's no tactical genius there, but it's worked. So I haven't been surprised. They've had a decent run of fixtures, notwithstanding the fact that one of those wins has been at Man United. Uh, but I think that Tim will do all right. And I think that Adebayo is still a good enough striker when the incentive is there, which and the incentive always for him, obviously, is another contract. West Brom shirt sponsors Zoopla have threatened to pull their £3 million two-year sponsorship deal over the Anelka Canal affair. Uh, Danny, we're still waiting to see if the FA charge him. I, I would assume they will. But isn't this actually a case uh, of this whole uh, moral suasion argument from the sponsors? Isn't it actually a sign that the system works? Well, I think the moral suasion is a really good thing and it works. But this has actually been a pretty ropey uh, event and the response to it has been very poor. I mean, Anelka was basically... From the FA? Yes. Anelka said he made that uh, sign as a sign of his, a symbol of his friendship to Diodoni. But Diodoni is like a massive anti-Semite. No one seems to... So it's a bit like sort of saying he's making it to some senior Nazi and it doesn't... And it's absolutely uh, fine. So, uh, you know, Anelka's um, may not be possibly the most politically sophisticated person uh, ever but this was a you know a bad moment this symbol is being made in France all over the place in front of uh, synagogues and Jewish places it's clearly quite a threatening anti-semitic uh, symbol and I think the FA should have acted long before now it's extraordinary to me it's taking them this time I think even if the uh, uh, FA didn't have the courage to uh, wade into the anti-semitic aspects of it they could have just done things a lot simpler um, you're not allowed political gestures on the pitch Judone is a political figure he could have made a figure of support to David Cameron not allowed okay no good guess what Gab I've got a question for you really? um, there is a three-way race in La Liga, as well as here, how exciting. Barcelona and Atletico are on 51 points. Real Madrid have 50. So why is it so tight at the top? It's tight at the top because these are three very good teams, Alison, and also Barcelona and Atletico because they drew with each other a week ago and then drew again at the weekend uh, while Real Madrid won seven in a row now, actually, for Carlo Ancelotti. Uh, he managed to, uh, to cut the lead from five points to just one point. And uh, given that from here on out, He's got the the head-to-head, the Real Madrid, uh, hosting Barcelona. You might actually say they might just be favorites for the title at this stage. And it's... um I, I think it's quite remarkable. And he finally has the balance right, actually, with the uh, so-called BBC up front, Bale, Benzema, and Cristiano. And uh, he's doing nice things in midfield as well, where he's playing Di Maria in a, in a central role. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much to my guests, Daniel Finkelstein, Alison Rudd, and, of course, the very excellent and much-loved Jim Proudfoot. Quick reminder that we'll be back on the road again. Yes, that's right. Manchester, the great city of Manchester, on February 6th. Tickets cost £5 for Times Plus members and £7.50 for non-members. 
To book, visit www.ctickets.com slash the times or call 0871-620-4025. We're going to be back next week. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.